0: Greetings, everyone. I can see that this pulpit, or podium, was designed for Charles Pope. (laughs) I meet people all the time who watch me on television for many years and say, you're nowhere near as big as I thought you were. I say, well, I outgrew my dad by three inches. Oops. And uh, so I guess that was sufficient. I didn't have much chance. My mother was barely five feet. My dad was five-six and a quarter. And I, when I'm very tall in the morning, am almost 5'9", <laughs> but this was built for a six foot four individual. I want to bring you greetings from over 700 down in Panama City, just a marvelous, beautiful peace site down there. And I heard again this morning that they've got gorgeous weather and bright blue skies and a soft surf, and we were able to be on a condominium, in a condominium, where we could look out and see to the far horizon and dolphins coming by and big schools every morning. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Then we went to Williamsburg, Virginia, where we were, and I spoke night before last and again yesterday morning, and we flew over here yesterday afternoon. It took a little over four and a half hours because with a blistering headwind, I had to stop at Walnut Ridge, Arkansas, for a fuel stop before we came on over here to the airstrip and landed right within about a mile of where we're seated. I want to get right into what I have to talk about because it is absolutely new and something that I believe the Church of God International has never understood or known before. I want you to turn to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. We're going to learn something about the Feast of Tabernacles and something about ourselves and something about a new species of creature that has never been identified by science, something about a new species of creature that the Protestants know nothing of, nor the Catholics, a new species of creature that perhaps we have only partially understood in the past. In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and the last very few verses of this chapter, we see that on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, God told them when they had gathered in the fruit of the land, verse 39, they were to keep a feast unto the Eternal for seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the eternal your God seven days. And you shall keep it a feast unto the eternal seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, that's a temporary habitacle, or tabernacle, or domicile, or a temporary dwelling place, seven days, all that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Now this is his instruction in perpetuity to successive generations of Israelites. And they continued to do that on down through their succeeding generations, including even in the time of Christ. When, even though they lived in permanent dwellings in Jerusalem, they would build a little temporary domicile on the top of their roofs out of palm fronds and branches. And they would actually move up there and camp out. Like as children, we used to make a little tent out of blankets and clothespins over the clothesline. And we liked to sleep in the backyard or out in the front yard and pretend that we were camping out. And so they camped out sometimes on their own property. Notice verse 43 and 4. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. It says nothing at all about that. Your may generations may know that Jesus Christ is going to come the first time and die for the sins of the world. He is going to come then the second time at the end of the age, at the end of 6,000 years, a lot of demand for his government. And he's going to set up and establish the kingdom of God on this earth. Every bit of that is learned by looking at the substance and the shadow, hearing the sound and then the echo dealing with type and anti type, looking at metaphor and at suggestion in the scripture. But did you know that for generations and millennia, the Jewish race have observed the festival of tabernacles with selected readings out of all places from the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that is a man's book from man's point of view, written by a gentleman who eventually became a candidate for suicide, Solomon, who said, life is nothing but a pursuit after wind. It is empty, a striving after a handful of air. Therefore, he said, when I saw all of the evil that was wrought under the sun, I hated life. And Solomon was very disgusted about the carnality and the physical pursuits and the worthlessness of it all. So the Jews looked at certain segments that had to do with this life and this experience, the trials and tribulations, the exaltations and successes, and read very formally many passages from the book of ecclesiastes on different days of the festival of booths now when did the israelites first begin to dwell in booths they were brought out of egypt during the days of unleavened bread were they not shortly after the passover what did they do sleep on the bare ground the first six and a half months till they got to the seventh month and then they began to dwell to dwell in booths no They began dwelling in booths the very moment they had to pitch their tents and find whatever they could erect as a shelter from the very word go from just after the passover and actually they dwelt in booths for 40 long years we all know the meaning of the word tabernacle or booth but it's a temporary domicile it is temporal transitory it's not going to last now we know the typology of Israel being brought out of Egypt. Pharaoh was a type of Satan. The two magicians, Janus and Jambres, are a type of the beast and the false prophet. Moses was a type of Jesus Christ who was the redeemer of the people to bring them out. And of course Moses and Aaron going together before the Pharaoh saying let my people go are a shadowy type of the two witnesses who will do the same thing in the latter time right ahead of us when God's people are once more to go into captivity and who will be preaching before the beast and a false prophet in the holy city of Jerusalem. When they came out of Egypt, God broke the back of the greatest nation that existed up to that time by massive plagues. He broke their back militarily by drowning all their armies in the Red Sea. When the Israelites stood on the banks of the Red Sea and could go no further, we see the analogy of we as Christians being begotten of God and not knowing what to do and Moses said, Stand ye still, and you shall see the salvation of the eternal. And with his rod he made a gesture, and God opened up the Red Sea. And we see in 1 Corinthians 10 that that's a type, a merely a shadowy type of baptism. Then what is the land of sin, or sin AI, but the wandering for 40 years, which is always in the Bible a sign of testing. Forty is a sign of testing. For 40 years they wandered in the land of sin, and we see, of course, in the days of unleavened bread that we're to drink in and eat in of the bread of life, which is Christ, as well as putting out sin from our lives. And we see the typology there as well of the wandering in the wilderness. But in fact, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years is a type of our entire human physical experience, from the time we're born until the time we die. When they crossed over Dry Shod into the Promised Land and God said you were to inhabit houses that you did not build, and discover wells thou diggest not, and to take the fruit off of trees that thou didst not plant, and to find a ready-made land whose inhabitants were driven out for fear before the Israelites, we see the type of the kingdom of God. Now, after the life of trial for 40 years, the newest generation, not the older generation, and that is another interesting, shadowy type that we will come to understand today. Why did the older generation die the carcasses of Moses and all of them were buried in the wilderness. And only a generation of youngsters born during the experience of wandering in Sinai went across Jordan into the Promised Land. Interesting language. I want you to go to a very strange-sounding scripture in Second Peter, the first chapter. You'll see what we're coming to here in a moment, I think, as we gradually develop this thought. Breaking into the middle of the thought, he is talking about the great and exceeding precious promises given to us that by these in verse 4, the first chapter of 2 Peter, we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He said then in verse 10, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things you shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be administered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it fitting, as long as I am in this tabernacle. Interesting language, talking about his physical human body, talking about his life. As long as I am in this tabernacle. To stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Knowing this shortly that I must put off this, my tabernacle. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. Now that's strange language. He doesn't say, I am going to die. I, Peter, with my innermost psyche and feelings, am going to perish. I'm going to cease to be. I'm going to cease to function. He said, I must put off this my tabernacle this my human physical body we've all heard and i won't get macabre or gross about this of terrible injuries where people have lost both eyes are they still there of course they simply cannot see the eyes are the mirror of the soul and one of those sensory organs a pair of them with which we take in a great deal of knowledge and information we can lose our hearing i have two profoundly deaf boys are they a personality a loving caring beautiful young son inside the body and the mind of each Of those children because they lack one of the physical senses well of course they are paraplegics armless legless veterans can come back literally absent their arms from the shoulder and their legs from the hips lying utterly helpless and yet they are still there living inside that body aren't they because you reside in your mind and that portion of your mind which is the portion where you live has nothing to do with the cerebral cortex It has nothing to do with the lobes just behind that part of your skull above your neck where your memory is contained. It even has nothing to do with that part of the cerebral cortex that gives you your motor facility, your coordination, your athletic ability. But it dwells in the frontal lobes, the forehead, right behind the forehead, between the eyes and the frontal lobes of your brain. Now, my father preached for many, many years, and we've all heard that and understood a little of it. But I believe he only went about halfway, and I believe that the other half has been discovered about what is called the spirit in man. But the Bible talks about the spirit of man. And I want to tell you something today about the human spirit, tell you something about a new species, a new creature that has never been discovered before. You know, for decades now, God's church has lashed out against the doctrine of the immortality of the soul and saying that it is absolutely pagan to the core. But don't you suppose that in the first, second, and third century, as John died, and finally Polycarp, and along came Eusebius, and Arnobius, and Justin Martyr, and some of the so-called anti-Nicene fathers, or those so-called fathers who wrote in the first couple of centuries prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, when Emperor Constantine required that all of them quit Judaizing by observing the seventh-day Sabbath and Pasch, or the Easter celebration, I should say Passover, on the 14th of Nicene, and that they adopt Easter instead. But during those centuries, people began to write and to reason and play with and toy with many strange things that Paul and Peter and some of the other apostles had said, and many strange things that they found in the Septuagint, that is, the Old Testament written in Greek, the Old Covenant, in the books of Ecclesiastes, many of the Psalms, some of the Proverbs. And they couldn't quite understand it. As the years went along, Satan the devil aiding and abetting, no doubt they came up with a very clever counterfeit. And that clever counterfeit is called the immortality of the soul. But you know, a counterfeit can be so close to the truth in the case of a $100 bill that only an expert can tell. That's the cleverness of Satan the devil because if he has you about 98% correct and 2% wrong, the old adage, a miss is as good as a mile, applies to spiritual things. He who is guilty of breaking one point of the law is guilty of breaking all of the law. And to sin, literally, transliterated out of the old Greek, uh, I should say Hebrew, into the Greek and finally the English, means literally just to miss the mark. It's like you're shooting with a rifle and you miss the mark. You miss the bullseye. You might hit the paper. You might even hit the edge of the outer ring, but you miss the ten spot. You miss the bullseye. That's all Satan is interested in, just missing the mark by a little bit. As we progress, I think you will see that we have perhaps unnecessarily attacked the idea that there is a living human spirit that does not die and is not destroyed by human physical death, but simply becomes completely oblivious, becomes completely profoundly unconscious, and that the Bible actually, in spite of all of the flippant little statements by Baptists and Pentecostals and others, oh, that soul sleeping, it happens to say, "Them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And we will see that there is a new creature and a new being that many people have never discovered. Peter said, Strange language, as long as I, that is presupposing Peter doing the talking, Peter with his will, his mind, his memory, his volition, his personality, his innermost psyche and his being is in or dwelling inside of a tabernacle. As long as I am in this tabernacle, knowing that I must put off this my tabernacle, but that presupposes, but I am still around someplace. But I have put off my tabernacle. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. I'll tell you a great deal of what I'm having, what I want to tell you today has to do with everything from law and grace to a great deal of things about the resurrection and many other subjects. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, breaking right in the middle of the thought where the Apostle Paul is talking about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he said in verse 7, but we have this treasure. In earthen vessels, you're physical and fleshly. You have a physical, human, fleshly, what is called a vessel. Now you know a vessel of gold, a vessel of silver, a vessel of diamonds and jewels. It is eternal. It might last for centuries. Is going to outlast all of us. I have some things in my home that are much, much older than I, including even books and publications. The eleventh edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is mere paper, that is much older than I am. And someday this human physical body is going to perish. We have this treasure, this priceless treasure, in earthen vessels, just like a clay pot. You could get down here and buy one of those red clay pots that you put plants in from Mexico, perhaps, and put them in your backyard or your, along your, your uh, patio somewhere. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, spiritual and not physical, internal and not external, hidden and not seen. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. That's not true of all of us all the time, but I'll read through this quickly. We are perplexed, but not in despair, because the Apostle Paul had a profound consciousness of what was happening internally. He understood things about the spirit, and he was moved to write of them. He had had an experience that none of us have ever had, and no other human being has ever had, that even transcended the transfiguration, at which time only three of the cheapest and the most close to Jesus, the closest to Jesus, James, Peter, and John, were allowed to participate in, where Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Bartholomew and certainly Judas Iscariot were excluded from that vision of a foretaste of the kingdom of God. He said, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body, that is the external temporal tabernacle, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Was he fascinated by death? Paul talked about death all the time that he said the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh so then death is at work in us and every day we know that we die a little bit but he said life in you life internally in them we having the same spirit of faith according as it is written I believed and therefore have i spoken we also believe and therefore speak but belief is with the heart and speaking is with the mouth the speaking is merely the external organ a tongue that is clacking against the hard palate and the teeth and the lips and the gums a larynx and an esophagus that are allowing certain controlled expulsions of air to create that sound but the thoughts come from the heart which is exactly what jesus meant when he said A little bit of dirt on a plate is not that which pollutes a man or defiles a man, but that which goes down into his innermost being, his heart, is that which defiles or pollutes a man. Knowing this, that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us also up by Jesus and shall present us with you. In verse 16, For which cause we faint not, for though our outward man... Well, then there's an inward man. Our outward man perish... Yet the inward man is renewed day by day, both in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. He talks about the renewing of your mind and putting on the inward man. That language is very, very plain in Romans 12, 1 and 2, in Colossians, the third chapter, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. Now, I can see this building, but this building someday will collapse and sag into the ground or be destroyed by a monstrous storm or an earthquake, or it will simply corrode and erode away. You can go over to Greece and to Rome, and you can see ancient buildings, but they're just the columns there. The roof is gone, usually, and just the foundations and certain stones sitting there. In ancient cities were gigantic, huge buildings that looked every bit as magnificent and more so as the Capitol in Washington, DC. And the same thing is true of all of us, because we are much less durable than stone. We are temporal. And this physical tabernacle in which we dwell is temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I can't see you. You can't see me. You can just see my tabernacle. All I can see is your tabernacle, your booth in which you dwell. There is a very secret you down deep inside of you, the internal you. You know, we spend all of our time concerned about the external. When we're little children, we all know that many times mothers in absolute shock are running around, where's the baby? I just gave the baby the bath, and the baby is halfway down the street with nothing on. And some of us have these terrible dreams about being discovered in public wearing nothing but the top of a pajama, uh, pajama set. And so we shower, and we brush our teeth, and we shave our face. I came running in here. I'd been out in the golf course a little bit this morning. My wife said, you must not go in there like that, isn't that awful? <laughs> she said, you've been wearing a golf hat, and I can see the ridge that it makes. I'm sorry, I will have to put up with a ridge. I don't have time to wash my hair this morning. So I confess, yesterday, yes, tomorrow, yes, but this morning, no, I didn't have time. But I went roaring up the stairs to shave because I didn't want to appear the way I went out in the golf course. I thought I better shave now so I'll look decent when I get to California this evening. And we put on clothing. And that's good. We have skin to cover some of the ugliest parts of our body. I remember Stan Freeberg's little ditty and his little song, Ain't You Glad You Got Skin? Skin's the thing that when you have it, you know, you feel at home in. For without it, both your liver liver and abdomen would keep falling on the floor and you'd be dressed in your intestine. He said... It it fits perfectly. Yours fits you and mine fits me. First we sit and there it is and then when we stand it's where it's been. Uh, Ain't you glad you got skin? Well I've always been glad that I've got skin covering my abdomen. Because if I had a transparent abdomen I don't think I'd ever eat another meal. If I had the knowledge of what my stomach is doing to that lovely food that they had so neatly arranged on my plate once I mix it all together if you did that on your plate, you never touch another bite. You just take your meal and stick it in the blender and just do that to it. A steak and a salad and a bunch of junk, put it back on the plate, oh, am I supposed to eat this or did I? You would not do it. So, it would look awful. But the point I'm trying to make is that we spend most of our lives, a lot of people will go have operations to have a facelift or perhaps to have fat removed from their body, and we spend all of our lives really concerned about the external wanting to have this external, temporal, tabernacle look as nicely as we can have it presented to other people. And that's what we see. But don't we realize all the way from the example of David, the last of the sons of Jesse, to men like Daniel, who was told, Thou art greatly beloved from the day thou first sought to seek the eternal thy God with fasting. Your prayer has been heard. And he saw a great, translucent, brilliant archangel who identified himself as Gabriel, and said, From the first moment that you began to chastise yourself and pray, your prayer was heard, for you are a man greatly beloved. And David was a man after God's own heart. And in the choosing of David, the little stripling boy, the shepherd boy, as opposed to all the big, tall, beautiful, stalwart-looking sons of Jesse, God said, God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. So God, with his laser-like vision, doesn't even care about your external. Well, he does only insofar as it may portray what is going on internally. But his eyes don't see the way mine do. All I can see is a whole lot of faces and external human beings. All you can see is Garner Ted standing up here in his pulpit behind a bunch of flowers, barely visible because uh, you're seated, you know, not, not quite high enough to see very much of me. But that's all you see. But now God, he doesn't even pause. His laser-like vision just goes right through into the frontal lobes of my brain, and he sees the secret me. Now most all of us have had to repent of sins, which sins were not all that public. Most of the sins we've committed have been sins in secret. Doesn't Jesus Christ talk about the time when all that is hidden shall be revealed? And that which was spoken in whispers shall be bleated out from the housetops. And isn't it that the Apostle Paul writes of the day when Jesus Christ will bring to light all the secret thoughts of the heart? There is that little girl in every one of you, from an elderly gray-haired lady to a tiny little seven-year-old girl to a teenage youngster just developing, who dreamed her dreams and talked to her dolly and thought of all of her fantasies and saw the movies and the television series and on, dreamed all about Prince Charming. There's that secret little girl with her yearnings and her longings that dwells in every female in this room. And there's that little boy who in many respects never grew up, who still has a lot of little boyishness about him that is deep down inside the oldest gray-haired man here, who likes to joke and quip and talk with one another, likes to be a good old boy with his friends. A lot of women have... Finally learned that most men never grow up, that there's a little bit of the boy in all of us. But there is deep down inside of all of us a person that we very rarely ever reveal to anybody else. Some people never reveal themselves to their own spouses, which is a real shame. They don't communicate in a loving, deep way about their innermost feelings and so since they don't share those things the spouse is completely unaware of them and they're either unaware of things they need to change or improve upon or unaware of things that would make them happy and in which they could share because we tend to conceal we tend to go deep down inside and keep our temporal facade up where others cannot look into it but you know men put chapters and verses in this text that the apostle paul was dictating and let's go right on with what he said for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved we have a building of God now my father's body is being dissolved my mother's body probably long since she died in 1967 my brother Richard David died in 1958 every one of you in this room have loved ones fathers and mothers and grandparents and certainly great-grandparents who have long since moldered away in their graves. people who have died of cancer or of pneumonia or of heart attacks or simply of old age like my grandmother Armstrong who put her glasses down and was rocking in her favorite chair and just said, I think I will rest and go to sleep and died in her sleep in a nap sitting up at age 96. If our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building and house, Now he talks, first of all, in two completely opposite analogous references to structures. And the first reference to structure is a temporary one. If our earthly house of this tabernacle, that's temporary, it's like a tent, like a little booth of palm fronds, were dissolved, we don't have another tabernacle, another temporary house, but we have a building, a house, He's talking about temporary and permanent. Made, he said, not with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Our house. You live in a house. You are not the house. You live in a house. But you exist. You live. But you live in the house. You live in the tabernacle. For we that are in this tabernacle, interesting language, we that are inside of here, we that are down inside of this tabernacle, do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up, overcome by life. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing, meaning... In plain language, he that produced humankind and created us and gave us a human physical experience for the very purpose of finally achieving a metamorphosis from physical to spiritual, from human to divine, is God, who has also given unto us the earnest, a little down payment of his spirit. Therefore, we are always confident. Now let's get to some scriptures that the church has done a little fancy footwork and little nice minuets and waltzes around for absolutely decades, as long as I've been in the Church of God. They have not known how to explain some of the scriptures we're going to read, because they have not really understood the rest of the story, to borrow the march from Paul Harvey, about the spirit of man. They've been afraid to get too close to a doctrine called the immortality of the soul. The man, the Apostle Paul, who said, Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. That man did not believe in the immortality of the soul, but he believed in the Spirit of man, begotten with God's Spirit, which produced a holy, new, never-before-begotten, first-time-ever, unique, one-of-a-kind Spirit being inside the mind of every begotten child of God. He believed in that and he also knew that when this temporal body died that precious spirit being simply went to sleep but it didn't die that's why Jesus said don't fear man who after he has killed the body cannot kill the soul and use the only word that could have been used to define what we're talking about even if it is mistranslated and should be life or living spirit or life principle but he did go on to say what? He said, but fear him who after he has killed the body is able to destroy both soul and body. That is, suke and soma in Gehenna, Gina, Gehenna fire. So it is not ever living for all eternity forevermore, this spirit that I speak of, is it? But it is absolutely spiritual essence. It is, it is a new creature, a new creation, a one of a kind, never before unique spirit being that is begotten in the minds of every human being who repents, receives baptism, and receives the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. No, it doesn't mean the church. I don't care how many people have waltzed around that scripture in Bible studies for decades, and they have, to try to say absent from the body means we're dead and therefore we're not around our family. We're dead and therefore we can't go to church anymore. That's not what we're reading here we've read all the way up to it from the preceding chapter in the flow of the thought and the context he's talking about our earthly house Peter's saying I must put off this my temporal tabernacle if we are absent from the body that means the innermost me this private creature I'm talking about no longer inhabiting this human physical body He's talking about while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We are. We're still at home in the body. We're here, and he's up there. We can't hear his words audibly with his own voice. We can't reach out and touch him the way Peter, James, and John did, the way Paul did. We can't lie down to sleep and wake up at four in the morning and find out he's already gotten up and is up on a mountain praying. We can't hear the sound of his own sobs as he prayed and cried at the tomb of Lazarus when Mary showed such faithlessness. We're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We can't see with these mirrors of the soul, these physical, optical, sensory organs of ours. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Because God has something to do with that spirit once the body dies. He takes care of it. It is somewhere. It stays someplace. I've preached many sermons about angels, preached many sermons about a fallen archangel, Satan, the devil. And I've tried to remind people there is a spirit world. And I've concluded some sermons by saying some of these empty chairs may be occupied by angels, but angels don't have to sit on chairs. So the people would be aware that there is, in fact, a spirit world. Well, there is. And this business of a human physical being attempting to achieve salvation in and through Jesus Christ of Nazareth is serious business. It is real business, it's not playing games, it's not fake business, it's not just a lot of rhetoric, not a lot of spiritual entertainment, but it's the nuts and bolts of who and what we are and why we are on this good green earth for our short lifespan and what happens to us when we die. And mankind basically has never understood from the days of the apostles, I do not believe, until this modern time in God's church. He goes on to say, wherefore we labor. Well, he says we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We'll explain that as we go along because he will help us understand it and other scriptures will as well. Wherefore we labor that whether absent or present we may be accepted of him. Verse 16 is interesting. Whenceforth we know no man after the flesh, carnally, human, physically, in our mundane, egotistical evaluation of each other according to merely carnal concepts, carnal comparisons, physical and human appearance. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, and they did, and heard him, and saw him, and knew of his physical stature, and every part of his body, the way his earlobes were, and his nose, and his face, and the color of his eyes, yet henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. A never-before, first-time-ever, absolutely unique spiritual being. Now, when the mothers in this room first discovered they were pregnant and expecting a child, it would have looked a little ludicrous for a woman about four months along to be walking along denying that she is pregnant. The visible, absolute evidence is there. And as I've said, and it's an old cliche, and i merely used it to get people to understand what I'm talking about in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans about the spirit in man and so on, I've said there has never yet a girl uh, been alive who came home and said, Mom, I'm in trouble. I'm half pregnant. Now, I don't want to belabor this issue. I merely want to remind us of where we came from, that the human female egg is absolutely fertilized by the penetration of the outer shell of that egg by a male spermatozoon, and they twain create a new never before absolutely unique first time ever separate human physical being and when that being is born he is born of his mother and he bears the characteristics of both his father and his mother and he bears his father's name And is a member of his father's family when he is born of that family. And he's a new creation. You didn't ever exist before. This is your first time around. It's your only time around in this temporal tabernacle. But you, if you have a spirit essence that has penetrated your human spirit and has absolutely ignited with it, in the interior frontal lobes of your brain where your willpower and the wellspring of emotion, the secret yearnings and longings, the secret hidden motives dwell. And if that is a converted spirit, a good and decent spirit, a humble and a kind spirit, a loving spirit, and if it exemplifies Regardless as to what happens in the temporal tabernacle for all the handshakes and smiles in the world that cover an angry heart, or a lying brother, or someone who has a chip on his shoulder towards someone else and merely smiles and says, how are you? That's just your temporal tabernacle putting on a display. But the deep down, inside, innermost spirit being that is there is called a new creature old things are passed away behold all things are become new now perhaps we can understand for the first time we'll turn to second corinthians 11 and i won't read this all but if we know the 11th chapter he talks about all the foolish boasting all these false ministers who were talking about all the things they'd been through and he said well i have been shipwrecked and five times i received of the jews forty stripes saved one i was beaten with rods i was stoned i've been dragged along i've been persecuted i've been whipped and beaten i was let down through a a window over a wall and escaped at night chapter 12 verse 1 it's not expedient for me doubtless to glory I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord and here again is a portion of Scripture that the church not understanding what I'm revealing to you today has done a lot of fancy work around for the last five or six decades to my certain knowledge when it was needless to do so we can read it the way it is and we can believe it the way it is I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago And he's talking about himself. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Well, that's a strange scripture, isn't it? Such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now when Ezekiel was at the river Kibar and was taken figuratively by the hank of the hair of his head down to Jerusalem to look through the wall and to see the priests actually baking cakes to the queen of heaven and bowing toward the east and greater abominations than this shall you see, God said. And Ezekiel was taken from a labor camp by the river Kabur in upper the steppes of Russia, actually south of the Black Sea, all the way down to Jerusalem. Did he go bodily? I don't know did god actually just cause him to dematerialize and rematerialize i do not know but god's able to do that did he simply take the mind or the spirit of man out of ezekiel and take his consciousness down there and let him see it i don't know but here's the apostle paul who's saying he didn't know either and i don't know do you you don't know either do you but god does doesn't he god knows and he's saying that one of the two is possible Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in this body, in this temporal tabernacle, with it intact, part and parcel of it, inside of it, with it, present, or out of the body, leaving the body behind, I don't know, I cannot tell. God knows how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, because he had a vision of heaven itself. The only human being that had a vision, perhaps present, either in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words. These are not the words of a mere man. The Holy Spirit inspired him to put these words in Holy Scripture. It leaves it a moot question, one which cannot be resolved. We need not ask it eternally over and over again because paul resolves it as being moot we don't know god knows but it had to be either or which means that either one of the two was possible with god either in the body or the body in a deep coma or asleep or simply inert and the spirit actually taken by the eternal god into a vision of heaven itself and replaced in the mind of Paul, because a spirit is a spirit. And spirits are not constrained by human physical parameters. Now, there are people who go off into false spiritism, who try to deal with spirits, who try to conjure up spirits. And that is the satanic counterfeit of the beautiful truth that we are dealing with here today. It would be a hideous thing and a very dangerous thing for anyone to engage in that type of thing. Let's go now to 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 7. I went to that, didn't I? Yes, we've already seen that. Over in Philippians 1 and verse 23, right quickly. Philippians 1 and verse 23. He said, I'll read up to it, for me to die, or to live rather, is Christ, and to die is gain, verse 21. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-9, I won't turn to that, he talks about the time of his departure. And he told Timothy, I know that the time of my departure is nigh. And the Apostle Paul was able to face the prospect of death with total equanimity, with total calmness of spirit, as were the martyrs of God. And you wonder how? Because, brethren, they understood that there is a new creation, a spirit being that is absolutely part and parcel with your human physical brain, that has no existence apart from your human physical brain, that dwells in this human physical tabernacle, that Almighty God has imparted to you a little portion of his spirit that he calls a down payment, an earnest of his spirit, that has begotten in your mind a new creature, that is being formed and is growing gradually as it's nourished by the mother in the same way that a fetus in a womb is nourished by a mother, through sermons, through Bible study, through prayer, through personal fellowship and exposure to each other, through all of the problems and the peaks and valleys of a Christian life and Christian experience, and through your gradual spiritual metabolic assumption of spiritual elements and vitamins and nutrients rather than physical so that you're gradually a developing creature in Christ. And that innermost secret you is the one with which God is most concerned. So if anyone ever made the mistake of trying to live an outward life and to present his physical, temporal tabernacle as being spiritual, while inside, it was a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde arrangement, and the inside was corrupt. That's exactly what Paul, I should say, Christ accused the Pharisees of being, wasn't it? Whitened sepulchres who internally were filled with dead men's bones. And we see the ugly revelation of their rotten plotting to actually plan to murder Christ and yet to pompously walk out and to portray themselves in their religious garb before their own constituency as being righteous. But he said internally they were full of dead men's bones. It would be a terrible mistake for anyone to play games with God and a terrible mistake for anyone who is thinking, oh, I can put off baptism when they realize they are a potential life, but they have not yet been begotten, and that spirit creature has never yet even begun to draw a spiritual breath, so to say. Because until you have been repentant, baptized, and had hands laid on you for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, you simply are not on your way toward the kingdom of God, and you have not become a... in jeopardy of it. I remember sermons many, many times in past years where I would wander out of there wondering if I could ever make it into God's kingdom. It was always as if the leaders were saying that the kingdom of God is something that you people can never achieve. You're so dumb, so stupid. And we'd get tongue-lashed and thrashed and beat up on out of the pulpit. And you'd go out of there like a whipped dog. How can I ever be as righteous as that man in the pulpit is? And it was always like a will-o'-the-wisp, something to which I can never attain. I can never reach it. Salvation is out there. I hope to get it someday. Will I ever receive it? Yes, if you get back of me and if you hang on to my coattails, if you stay with the body, if you hang in there and all those things. But never the idea that you as an individual can stand there and say, though you kill this, my body, you can't kill me because I have life eternal residing within me intact. And God will perform that wonderful thing he has begun and he will not lose any of those that he has begotten and that my faith and my hope is in Christ. That's how martyrs were able to walk with a song on their lips to the lions in the den, singing hymns to the guy with the sword who was going to behead them or who was going to stone them to death. And the, the catalog of martyrs that we read who were able to just look to Jesus Christ as Stephen did as he died and say, I see the Son of Man. And he was given that vision of the right hand of God the Father in heaven as he died. And Saul was there and saw it. And it had to profoundly affect him when he was converted later on. In Romans 8 eight, uh, and verse 5 to 16, I'll just read a few portions of that. Is anyone cold? Is this cold in this room? I wonder if there's... If I'm really uh, very cold. I'm just going to pause for a moment to say my hands are freezing and the top of my head is about freezing. I'm afraid I'm going to get a cold. I don't know if there's any way we can turn the air conditioning down a little bit, but it is really icy up here. Thank you very much. The 8th chapter of Romans, let's go to verse 5. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And then notice in verse 8, so then, they that are in the flesh, notice that language, they acknowledging there is a being there who is inhabiting or dwelling in flesh, not just those fleshly, not just flesh people, But they, those beings, those creatures that are in the flesh, and of course he's speaking here by analogy, those who are comparing carnally, those who are judging and comparing according to ego and vanity, and those who are looking at things as man sees and not as God sees, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You. Now let's get this language straight for the first time ever. You, the deep-down, private, secret you. What is your name? Who are you? Think of yourself right now. You all know your names, and I know mine. Garner, Ted, you. You are not in the flesh. This isn't me. It's just my tabernacle. You are in the Spirit. My being has been plunged into, by the uniting of the Spirit of God, a spiritual essence if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to it. He is none of his. And if the Spirit is in you, the body is as good as dead. We're delivered every day unto death, said Paul, because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. His righteousness, not just ours. No wonder then we can understand Romans 7 a little better when Paul said, The good that I would, I I do not. And I find it is a law within me that when I would do well, sin is ever close at hand. And he shows the warring between the flesh and the spirit because it is nothing more than the external and the internal, the physical and the spiritual, the temporal and the eternal, at war against each other in the human physical body. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, it's not something to which you shall attain. It is not something which just lives as an aura about God's throne that is billions of miles distant. It is not something in someone else. It is something which is to live vibrantly within you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive, because we're dying a little bit every day, your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children, the sons, the offspring of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, adoption, whereof or whereby we cry, Father and call him father in our prayers the spirit witnesses bears witness itself with our spirit there is the spirit of man there is the human spirit and that spiritual essence from God Bears witness with our spirit that was already there waiting for his spirit in the same way that the mother is waiting with a new life potential for the father who can germinate that life and create a first time ever and ever before unique human being. So his spirit with our spirit bears witness that we are God's kids, God's children, the children of God, God's sons and God's daughters. and if children and we're heirs because he is the great fabulous multi-billionaire heavenly father heirs of god and joint heirs with christ if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together over in colossians 3 and verse 3 it says your life is hid with christ in god so that god has that secret innermost life hidden first peter 3 1 to 4 he talks about women who he urges to be in subjection to their husbands. And he says, don't let your adorning be that outward apparel and the hair and the plating of the hair and so on, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. Now let's go to some of the real Catholic scriptures and understand for the first time perhaps in our lives about the spirit of man and the new creature in Christ that is to dwell in us. Ecclesiastes 3:21. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 21. Right back after the Psalms. We read above that, of course, about how both beasts and men die and have one breath so that a man has no preeminence above a beast and all go to one place and turn to dust again. Now, for years, people said you need to insert the word whether that's sort of implied here after the word knoweth who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth. He's implying that he doesn't know he's asking a question. And he just leaves it up to those who read the text. But let's notice a little further on in Ecclesiastes 12, this very beautiful, almost poetic chapter. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, when an old, infirm person with a disease is perhaps wondering when death is going to come. Or, as we see a little later on, a sort of an inference that perhaps the great tribulation of the day of the Lord has come. While the sun or the light of the moon or the stars be not darkened, or the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few. And I'll drop down to verse 6. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, the booth, the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place and the spirit shall return to god who gave it then it goes somewhere spirit is somewhere it doesn't in the sense that we understand in our mundane language occupy space and have shape and weight because it is spiritual essence of which we cannot know with any degree of certainty now we see through a glass darkly but spirit is It does exist. God is. He does exist. Christ is at his right hand. The 24 elders are at that translucency of glass on each side, 12 per side, arranged next to God's throne. Arranged, I should say, with billions of angels about. There is a Michael, there is a Gabriel, there is a Satan, the devil. There are spirit beings. There are angels in this room. And there are many, many spirit beings in this room which have been begotten. And some are beginning to become well-developed. And others are just little, almost unrecognizable spiritual fetuses that are barely beginning, that are not very mature yet. But there are spirits in this room. A human spirit is in the mind of every one of you. And those who have been begotten of Almighty God, and he has put his spirit with that human spirit, a new creature in Christ. You're an older, gradually growing older creature in your temporal tabernacle. But inside, every day, as the temporal gradually gets older, the spirit is to gradually get ever newer and ever more refreshed. So he says, the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. I want to conclude by turning to Job, the 19th chapter. Job, the 19th chapter. We could read a great number of scriptures on this. This has not been understood either, because people have tended to misinterpret it rather than what the original implies. But in Job, the 19th chapter, Job is saying in verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, this booth, this tabernacle, this temporary dwelling place. Yet, if you look at the margin of the original, what this is saying, yet without my flesh, Not with it, not in it, but without my flesh. In a non-fleshly sense, shall I see God. Now do we understand 1 Corinthians 15? When the Apostle Paul said some will say with what body do they come thou fool that body which shall be is not that which dies or goes to the grave and it will not be renewed except it die and that grain that you plant is not that which shall be except it first die a grain of corn or a grain of wheat is reproduced several hundred times with an first never before absolutely unique first time ever new wealth that comes out of a dying grain that the little germ puts down a little root and gradually pushes some leaves and becomes a big stalk and produces great ears of grain from a grain that died and so we as human physical beings like that grain of corn shall someday be planted in our graves unless Jesus Christ comes during the time of this generation and that spirit which is to be resurrected and to be given a completely different body did you suppose that You're going to be in the resurrection the way you are now. Now, in some way, we're going to be able to recognize each other, but I don't really perceive that we're going to have uh, those of us with long or short sideburns or beards or clean-shaven or mustaches or none and with bad eyesight or good eyesight and with certain little problems or moles or warts or hickeys or problems on our flesh are going to appear exactly the same way because it says we shall be glorified with him. And when these great men of God were treated to a vision of heaven or treated to a vision of the transfiguration of Christ and saw Elijah or Moses or treated to an actual confrontation with a great archangel of God, they were looking as if burnished gold and crystal and diamonds and a brilliant being that you could virtually see through who shone like the sun, who had a voice like Niagara and who just terrified them so that they fell over in a dead faint because of the glory and the magnificence of this great creature that they saw. And that is what we are to become. We are to be glorified with Jesus Christ. He is the first begotten from the dead. He is the firstborn of many brethren. And this creature that is inside of us, that began with the spirit of man, begotten of God, is a new creature. And it is, and it exists, and it must be nurtured. And it must be fed. And it must be protected. So you see, every time with the mirror of the soul, you focus your eyes on things that you shouldn't. You pollute not the eye, but that precious spiritual creature, that brand new species of which nobody knows. That's what you pollute. And when you hear with the ear something that causes a mouth to chuckle, it is an off-color story. It isn't the mouth or the ear that you're polluting or the flesh or the tabernacle. It doesn't change. But you're kind of browning the edges of and polluting and corrupting that precious, sweet, holy little thing that God loves so much inside of your temporal tabernacle. Wouldn't a mother, knowing that she has a child on the way, protect it? Wouldn't she preserve it? She would not want to fall. She wouldn't want to smoke or drink. She wouldn't want to expose herself to a disease. She would want to protect and put only the most wholesome foods into her body because that umbilical cord that is feeding that little baby, she wants to be functioning perfectly so when the child is born, it'll be just a beautiful, healthy, happy baby. Isn't that exactly the same responsibility that we have to that beautiful, spiritual little creature in Christ that dwells within us? I had the experience recently, and I'm learning every day, of course, new lessons in life, of watching my son, a little bit of interplay, with my grandson, Michael. Michael was just looking at him the way a little 5 month will, with kind of dull, partial comprehension. And Mark began to look into his eyes and say, oh, Michael, I love you. And Michael just grinned and looked like that at him and kind of had a spasm. You know, he grinned so hard, he lost Where, where where is he? Oh, there he is. And the way little children will. And I got to thinking, what if Mark were standing there in front of his son, arms akimbo, or folded, and just looked at him with a glower on his face and a scowl and said, I hate you. What do you think that boy would do? How do you think he would respond? You know, Jesus Christ said the following, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. With all thy heart means with that little private creature deep down inside. With all of your living spirit, with your life principle, And with all of your intellect and your knowledge to look at a leaf, a bird, a fish, a sunset, a glorious day. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, with all thy mind. I dare to tell you something. That even as Mark is only going to receive love by giving it first and not demanding it. So God so loved you when you were a wayward sinner that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us first while we were yet sinners. So Mark and his beloved little wife love their child first. Their child is not automatically going to love them. He's got to learn to love them. And he's going to love them because they love him first. And if they treated him with hatred and contempt or ignored him, as you heard in the sermonette about spending time and giving of yourself with your children and each other, they would not get the result they want. Now, I dare to tell you something. I will be so bold as to go further than you think I ought. Almighty God wants your love. He not only wants it, but I know because my God says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God among you. Do you know that jealousy is a divine emotion? We've always thought it's colored green. We always thought it was an evil emotion, that women shouldn't be jealous, that husbands shouldn't be jealous. You mean to tell me that when a human being will pour out all of his love toward another beloved human being and say, I will cling to you only, that at some time later on, 8% or 12% or 14% of that love is bifurcated over here somewhere, and then they wonder why the individual is hurt deeply? God is hurt. It pains him. And hurt leads to anger. If he sees his deeply beloved children, who made a covenant with him, all the words thou hast spoken, we will do. He said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, not in place of me, not in front of me. I'm the only one. And I will love you, and it shall be well with you, and you'll have everything you want. He said, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And how do you hate God? You ignore him. You're in contempt of his laws. You impugn and ridicule his principles. You ignore his Bible. You disobey. You do not submit yourself unto him. That's how you hate him. And how do you love him? You obey him. You attend the festival of tabernacles. You keep his Sabbath, which is the only great identifying sign, Exodus 31, that he gave in perpetuity to all of his people. You keep his laws, which is the riverbed through which the Holy Spirit flows, but also Like David, who exalted and did cartwheels and leapt and danced before the...